0: Well, we've come to that place where um, when, you, when, you t- when you tweet about the weekend, you have to pray about whether you want to actually tweet about what you're going to talk about or not, um, because you're not really sure whether or not you want to do it alone or not, and so you kind of calculate, should I say that we're going to teach about hell today, or should I just say, A, we're going to teach about hell, and B, Chris Tomlin is going to be at Passion City Church leading this weekend, and hope that uh, one of those maybe outweighs The other, but uh, I'm I'm so excited today, not in a in a giddy, a happy, uh, kind of uh, insensitive way, because when you spend a couple of weeks digging down into the subject of hell, it doesn't make you incredibly happy. It doesn't make you glib. It doesn't cause you to say, "Well, I'm just going to go in there and you know preach about hell." It makes you sober. It makes you heavy. It makes you ask a lot of questions. It makes you wrestle with God and with the truth of who He is and how we interact with Him. And it makes you feel a tremendous sense of stewardship and responsibility. And I think that's what's driving us today. Uh, Bill did such an amazing job of recapping uh, our, our talks the last couple of weeks, actually, in the giving today. Really, really strong and amazing. So if you missed a little of where we were coming up to, to today, then. You got that in the giving today, life is short, eternity is long, and what we do with our lives affects our eternal destiny. We talked last week about heaven and how heaven is better, and we talked about a lot of the reasons that heaven is better, but can I just uh, begin today, if we can just start, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. I I need you to hear from Jesus and not from me. I need us to be in the word of God today, not in the opinions of people so we got some ground to cover today, and we're going to just jump right in. And to jump right in with a big idea that, that heaven is better. And I hope that you'll go back and, and, and sit in the message from last week if you missed it, because what I've discovered in talking to people since last week is that most people had never really spent very much time thinking about heaven. I mean, they know it's out there. They, they, a lot of people believe it's real. A lot of people believe that's where they're headed. They, they just never really spent a lot of time thinking about what does heaven really look like what what is heaven about because for the average believer let's face it let's be honest heaven isn't better than earth that's why we're clinging on to earth with everything we've got because in, in in our real self we we don't really believe there's something better than what we're experiencing here on our best day and we looked at that last week but I wanted to to come around one idea before we jump in today that is a a real important element in why heaven is better and it's this, that heaven is better because of the wrath of God. And when we talk about God, we are, we're normally kind of leaning towards his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his patience, his forgiveness, the sacrifice he paid for us, his, his beauty, his perfection. And, and we do at Passion City Church talk about the wrath of God because we talk about the gospel and Without the wrath of God, there really isn't a gospel to celebrate, right? There really isn't anything to rejoice in without the wrath of God. But I want us to come one step back today and understand there really is no heaven to look forward to without the wrath of God. Because there's some really bad stuff going on on earth right now. And if we're all eternal beings, everyone alive is an eternal being. Every spirit alive is an eternal being being satan is an eternal being so there's not just like a period somewhere at the end of the satan sentence where after a period of time he just ceases to exist and therefore we're all happy forever satan is an eternal being and given the landscape of some of the things happening on earth the real nature of sin when it's stripped away from a Friday night or a Saturday night and it's all, you know, masquerading as something that looks fun and entertaining and exciting and enticing to us. But when sin really sinks its teeth into humanity, humanity turns ugly, and I mean the ugliest form of ugly you can imagine. And there's some things going on planet Earth today that I I honestly, I thought at some point I was going to describe four or five scenarios of things that are happening right now on this Earth. And I, honest to God, just couldn't get the gumption up to do it, especially in an environment where there might be some younger children in this room. But there is wickedness on this planet today that makes the human mind melt And wonder as to how could someone be that depraved. And the reason why heaven is better is because the wrath of God is going to purify every element of wickedness from our future and ensure. That heaven is a pristine place of the beauty and the righteousness of God. So that those who dwell there will dwell there free from the corruption and the corrosion of sin forever in the presence of God. And that's going to happen by the cleansing nature of the wrath of God. And we're all who are standing in heaven are going to say, praise God for the cleansing power of the holiness and the beauty and the wrath and the righteousness of God that has ensured for us that all sinfulness is banished from our future forever and ever. There's a book called Heaven is for Real. Anybody uh, read that book? Um, About 8 million people or so have purchased that book. Number one New York Times best-selling book. I wonder how well the book would do. I was thinking about it uh, all week long. Uh, Hell is for Real. I wonder how well uh, that book would do. What do you think? Can you see that as you're on your flight to Cleveland and you're just going through the airport and you're thinking about, you know, getting a Snickers bar and, uh, you know, a Dr. Pepper and thinking, I'd like to have something on the plane because it's, you know, a little bit longer flight. And then, the, then you see it right there uh, at the entrance to the bookstore or by the checkout. Hell is for real. And uh, you think, yeah, that's what I want to read uh, on, on my flight today up to Cleveland. I, I don't think that book would do uh, quite as well interestingly, and you can get a study to tell you almost anything you want to tell you. So I don't put a tremendous amount of stock in those, but I did want to try to figure out what do people in America believe about hell. And I found one study that's a recent study from just last year that said 44% of people in America believe that hell is a real place of suffering and judgment. I was shocked by that, honestly. That's a high number. 44% of people, according to this poll, believe that hell is a real place of suffering and judgment. Interestingly, when you ask the question a different way, asking Americans, how many of you believe you're going to go to heaven, that number's dropping, by the way, pretty dramatically. I don't know if we're getting worse or our confidence in heaven is uh, getting a little shaky, but 62% of people in this country believe they're going to heaven when they die. Only 2% of people in America believe that they're going to hell when they die. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you'd want to think that if there are options, and almost half the people in our country do believe in some kind of hell, that that you're definitely going to end up in heaven and not in hell. So today, what I want to do is to try to be a good steward to our flock, and I wanted to just lay it out there uh, so that we all can understand and wrestle with the reality Of what's ahead at the end of scripture and we don't have this to go on the screen it's just more I want to read it to you but at the end of scripture the very last paragraph in the bible which I would think would be significant having a whole scripture begins within the beginning God ends with this revelation of of what's to come in the end times and then the very last paragraph of scripture this is what it says it says I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, yes. This is Jesus speaking now in red. I am coming soon. And so the church answers and says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then the last line is amazing because Revelation is a book of tribulation and of judgment and of wrath and of hell. And the very last line of it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen. So what I would suggest that we try to endeavor to do is to not take away from the prophecy in this book and not to add to the prophecy that is in this book, but to let God be God and to let God do the talking and for us then to adjust and to calibrate our lives around the teaching of God, the character of God, person of God. And that's really what all I want to endeavor to do today. So I have uh, two big points, and the first one is just for us to come around and discover what does Jesus say about hell? And we're going to look at a few passages in the Gospels beginning in Matthew chapter 10. In most of the places in the New Testament where Jesus is talking about hell, which he talks about often, he's using a word there referring to Gehenna. And I want us to understand what that is. Uh, Gehenna comes from uh, a Hebrew word, and it's actually a place that's referenced by the Jewish people and then moving into the time of Christ, a real place outside the city of Jerusalem. It has history in the Old Testament days where some of the gods who were not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have sacrifices made to them there. Most, Most notably, and you'll find this if you do any research on Gehenna, that to the God of Molech, Children were sacrificed in this place called Gehenna or the Valley of Henan, Real place. And because of that, the place was cursed by God. Moving forward to the time of Jesus, this valley outside of the city of Jerusalem was a place where trash was perpetually burning. So all the refuse of the city would be put into this place and some agents, maybe sulfur, would be used to continue the fire burning to try to uh, reduce the the refuse of the city. So there was a, a perpetual stench and cloud in this place called the Valley of Gehenna. And so when when Jesus was teaching about heaven and hell, he would reference to this valley and say, that place down there that's full of the refuse and it burns by day and it burns by night and there's this stench of a cloud that rises up from it, that place is the way I'm gonna reference an eternity without the grace of God covering your life. And he begins that in Matthew chapter 10. And I wanna just lift up a few things Jesus taught us About hell, Number one is that Jesus taught us that hell is worse than the worst physical persecution you can face. And again, we we don't need to really uncover that. You can read it for yourselves in Scripture. There are very many accounts in the New Testament of what happened to believers who were trying to follow God in faith in a climate and a culture where there was great opposition to Jesus and to the, the moving forward of the church. And this has been true all the way through our history and the history of the church is true today. People are being persecuted, tortured, having all kinds of horrendous things done to them today because of their faith. And Jesus taught that as bad as that is, that's a blip on the radar compared to what eternity without the grace of God would be like. Matthew ten twenty eight. just jumping into the middle of this passage. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. That's a great statement, isn't it? Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I just want you to think about that statement because these, these men and women, and I, some of these men and women were going to be sawn in half. Some of them were quartered by horses. Some of them were boiled alive some of them were skinned alive some of them were burned alive and he said don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but not the soul rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell and then he comes around his care for us which i just want to put in there because there's so much grace in the gospel And uh, this is what he says about those that he's trying to shepherd in this moment. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny yet. Not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. But then look how Jesus brings the point again in verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Matthew 13, verses 36 to 42, Jesus teaches us that hell is a place of regret and sorrow. You know, I think sometimes you'll run into a person occasionally who's living a hard life, kind of running, you know, running heavy on earth, and you come up with your little Christianity, and you've got your Bible and your journal at Starbucks, and, you know, you start up a conversation, and you're like, well, I just want to share with you, you know, the grace and the power of God. And they're like, hey, man, I don't need to hear all that. I'm, I'm rolling pretty hard right now, and I've got my people. And, uh, and, and I, I honestly, and people will say this, I honestly would rather spend hell with my people and my party than to go to heaven with you and a bunch of church folks. And the reason they say that is because somehow there's this misconception that hell... It's just an eternity of all the sinful pleasure of earth that we've experienced. And so, you know, maybe uh, it isn't the best option and maybe it isn't uh, the fullness of a relationship with God forever. But hey, you know, I've got my beats and I've got my crew and I've got my stuff. And, uh, you know, so we're at least, you know, doing something. I I want you to know today that hell is not an eternal opportunity to enjoy the sinful pleasures that you've known on earth. Hell is Human misery forever. That's what hell is. It's not sinful pleasure forever. It's human misery forever. Because sin does what to us? It leads us always to the empty place and the broken place. And that's the place of hell. Not the front end place where we're like, oh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Not the initial moment where all of us would have to say, even the believers here, sin is fun. Amen? For a little while. And then it's not fun. And then it's empty and it's broken and it corrupts and corrodes. And that's the part of sin that we're left with in hell. Jesus is talking about good seed and bad seed being sown among his flock. And this is just one section of it, beginning in verse 37. And he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin... And all who do evil. And they, these angels, will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The third thing Jesus teaches us about hell is that it is his eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 31. To 46. It says, And when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with them, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from the other, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and then the king will say to those on his right, Come. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and close you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and we did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever... You did not do for one of the least of these. You did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. Hell isn't a short reckoning and then there's nothing. Hell isn't uh, falling short of heaven and then you just sort of disappear and to nothingness, hell is eternal punishment according to Jesus. Mark 9, Jesus says hell is perpetual fire. How are we doing so far? Um, Good. People will ask, is hell literal fire or is the fire figurative? Most every uh, scholar um, that you would probably nod towards or lean towards is going to say that all this is uh, figurative, talking about the misery of hell, because uh, Jesus does also speak of hell in terms different than fire. It's, it's the outer darkness is one way he describes it. But I, I think just reading the text, for me, not adding to or taking from, I wouldn't discount the fact that there's fire there. I wouldn't discount the fact that it's hot and Hell. And obviously, it's not a consuming fire where people are annihilated by the fire, but the imagery and the, the word choices of Jesus and the picture that he's referencing, I, I would just say whether it is figurative or literal, honestly doesn't matter. It's fire. And it's perpetual fire. He says in verse 42 of Mark 9, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Aren't you glad that uh, we've got a better hope than that? You know, we've got Jesus living in us, but he's giving us a picture now. And he's saying, look, if you've got something in your life so powerful that it is ruling over you, you've got to do the most uh, forceful thing you can do to get rid of that thing from your life. You've got, to, you've got to take serious action. You can't just sit back and go, well, I'm kind of wrestling with this right now. You have to take a, a preventative measure, and you've got to get rid of whatever it is that the enemy has parked in your world to corrupt you from the things that God has been dreaming about from your life. We're so accommodating this generation of sin. And we we wonder why we don't have victory and why we're not walking in the fullness of God and why we're not walking in the fullness of the spirit. And we got stuff all in our world and we're just accommodating and said, yeah, I know that's there and I've let that stay and I've let this person kind of take up a residence in my world. And he's like, hey, you got to move all that stuff out. And that's kind of what Jesus is really getting around here. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Why? For it's better to you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, for it's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, for it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. In Luke 16, Jesus also teaches us about hell that is a place of conscious awareness of something better that is unattainable. Hell is, is a place where there's a conscious awareness of something better that is unattainable. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I don't want to really paint the whole story again. If you missed it, you'll have to back up and read the context of this for yourselves. But it says in verse Um, 22 that the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to abraham's side this beggar was at the gate of this rich man named lazarus always just begging for the crumbs and the scraps and the rich man never even noticed him never gave him anything and then it says the rich man also died and was buried and in hades where he was in torment he looked up and saw abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And then the story goes on to say that the message comes back to this rich man in Hades that not only are we not coming to you, but the the gulf between you and us is not a bridgeable Gulf. But I want you to notice that not only was there agony for this person in Hades, but the person was aware of another place, aware of a different outcome, but yet unable to attain it. I mentioned a few times as we've come along, and I want to just clarify that, that hell is a place void of God. And, and that's true in a way, but obviously God's omnipresent, and so it's not completely true in every way. And there are two passages. I'm not going to dive into them today, but I'd like for you to write them down if you want to just see both sides of this. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 describes hell as a place void of God. But then Revelation 14, 9 through 11 describes the fact that the angels and the Lamb actually see the suffering in hell. And I think what you get when you synthesize these two passages and when you see the whole of the story is this, that people in hell are aware that there is a God who they are never going to have a relationship with forever. That's hell. Hell is an awareness, a conscious awareness that you do not have what is most beautiful. And that's a very tough reality to deal with in hell, to see what you have rejected, and to perpetually be aware of what you have refused to acknowledge in your heart. Jesus says, This is hell. Hell is for real. The second thing I want to step into is a second dimension today, and I want to look at what does the cross of Jesus teach us about hell? So we've seen Jesus' words himself, not some person, not some teacher, not an author, not a preacher, but Jesus. And apparently Jesus was not, uh, it wasn't like a random, obscure reference. We didn't even touch on all the references to hell from the teachings of Jesus, but just a few. But I also want to come back around then and and look at this question. What does the cross of Jesus mean? teach us about hell. Because if anything, the cross teaches us that Jesus wasn't ambivalent when it comes to the subject of hell. Now I, now I know the human mind, trust me. I, I've been you know, down in, the, in, in, in the, the lower level of this for a while now, and the human mind wants to default to a universalistic point of view. The human mind is going to always default to to a universalistic point of view. And there's plenty of teachers to help you and encourage you and cheer you on in that journey who will say, you know what? At the end of the day, we all make it. At the end of the day, everybody gets there. At the end of the day, the love of God wins out. At the end of the day, the grace of God wins out. At the end of the day, I know it's a mess, but God somehow rectifies it all at the end of the day. And somehow, you know, this amazing God that we, know, we love and serve, and somehow he's gonna work it all out at the end of the day. And, and, and to that point of view is a cross that's standing in history that we celebrate like nothing else we celebrate on earth. We celebrate the cross as the greatest reality in history and in eternity. And so I want to ask a few questions today because I think that cross tells us some important things about what Jesus believed about hell because he was not ambivalent. When he made the decision to step out of his throne and enter into humanity and have done to him the worst thing that can be done to a human being. To have put on his life the effects of guilt and shame and condemnation and to ultimately be separated from his father by our sin. So what does his cross teach us about hell? Number one, it teaches us that there's something to be saved from. The cross teaches us that Jesus is a savior, but if there's a savior, there must be something to be saved from. So I ask you, what is it that Jesus was saving us from when he gave his life on the cross? What do you think? You don't have to answer out loud, but I want you to process that for a moment. Because uh, let me just ask a couple of easier questions. How many of you do believe in Jesus? Could I just see a show of hands? And you don't have to raise your hand. You can just say, I don't know yet, or uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, maybe start that. Who, maybe how many of you don't believe in Jesus? No, I'm not just kidding. You don't have to answer. But I, could we just start over again if you're really feeling it? How many of you do believe in Jesus? Could I just see a show of hands? Okay, that's great. Um, how many of you believe that Jesus is a savior? Can I just see a show of hands again? I'm just going to work down together. Please don't feel like I'm just doing this. I really want to see you say me. Uh, how you believe that Jesus is your Savior? I'm just asking, okay? And so the question then is, and you don't have to answer out loud, what did Jesus save you from? And you need to work down through that answer because I think we're gonna start with, well, he saved me from my sin, obviously. That's the right answer. Um, he saved me from myself. He saved me from a life of, of less than the very best. And all those are right answers, but um, Jesus could have uh, fixed all that a whole lot of different ways. The main thing that Jesus saved us from is the coming wrath of God. That's what Jesus saved us from. And he saw this tidal wave of God's holiness coming. And in the wake of what is coming, Jesus appeared at the right time to take the brunt of the coming tidal wave of the wrath of God. So that in Him we could be hidden and covered by His righteousness so that when the coming wrath of god comes and you know we looked at the passage in in first peter we've looked at second peter uh, it is coming when that comes we are in the shelter of his wings. We are under the covering of the blood of Jesus. We are under the covering of of a Savior who gave his life in our place, who took on our sin, bore the brunt of the wrath of God on his life, suffered and died and was buried and descended, by the way, into the lower parts of the earth. Jesus believes in hell because he descended down into the lower parts of this earth. And he did all of that so that we then could be covered by the righteousness of Jesus. That God being just and the justifier, Romans chapter 3, could say, I'm still righteous. But because of what Christ did when he took the payment and the penalty, I can now transfer into your account his righteousness because I've already transferred into his account your sinfulness. And there's a covering now and a permanent, eternal, once and for all covering for sin. The righteousness of Jesus. To save us, yes from ourselves, yes from less than the best, yes from our sin, but to save us from the wrath of God. And that's why the cross is so gruesome. That's why it's so miserable. That's why Jesus wasn't euthanized. That's why Jesus didn't just come and they say, well, he he, he took on our sin, then he went to sleep and passed away in the night. No, we saw the full effects of the gruesome aftermath of sin and all of what it does to humanity all laid on the innocent life of Christ. And in a microcosm of judgment, we saw God pouring out His hatred out of his righteousness on sinfulness at the cross. You say, well, where where do you get that? Uh, Romans chapter 5. The hinge, honestly, of the gospel is the book of Romans. And probably the hinge of the book of Romans is chapter 5. And in the middle of chapter 5, there's a, a passage that we all know really, really well but a few verses beyond it are incredibly important for us today. Beginning in verse six, be great to read the whole chapter, but just dropping into verse six, you see at just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Can anybody say thank you for that today? Just at the right time when we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. This is the gospel. Yay, God. Thank you for being that kind of God. For very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's beautiful. Now, for a lot of us that have been around, around the Word of God, sort of our, our confidence ends at the end of that verse. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you were asked somebody to keep rolling strong, they'd they go, okay, I'm a little bit shaky about the next couple of phrases. But they're so essential for, for you and me today. Look at verse 9. Since... We have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's say it with me, God's wrath through him? Exclamation point. So be justified by Christ dying in our place, we get saved from something, and the something we get saved from is the wrath of God. And then he goes on to say in verse ten for if When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Saved through his life. So what we were saved from was the wrath of God. And if Jesus didn't believe that day was coming, why would he put his life? in our place. Jesus' belief about hell was so compelling that it caused him to put himself in peril to the highest degree. I I don't know if you know it or not, but there was a a volcanic eruption in Japan yesterday about 130 miles outside the city of Tokyo. And um, I wanted to show you a couple of pictures of it because I, I saw it as I was reading the news this morning, and it really stunned me a little bit. Um, I think we have a macro shot of the eruption, and, and that's the shot. And then we see some of the aftermath of this, and it's, it's pretty powerful. It's just a little uh, a hillside uh, village, lodge, and uh, they're rescuing people there. And then I think we have one more image of this. That was yesterday when uh, one... The volcano on Earth did one little, and it just completely covered these people 's existence. There were lots of people uh, and this is a very popular uh, hiking mountain, and there were hundreds of people hiking the mountain in the midst of this eruption and um, so there's other images of them trying to get rescued off another side of it. But to me, it just was a beautiful picture in the midst of what we're talking about on both sides of the equation. When, when, when God's righteousness erupts, it, it's, it's going to make that look like um, nothing. Okay, that's one volcano. One little eruption, we see a plume of smoke that that we can actually fly around and take a photograph of. So it's not something so violent that you can't fly near it and there is no photographic evidence today. Because, I mean, when this thing went off, everything got wiped out. That can happen and does happen, but not yesterday. People did lose their lives as a result of this. It was significant, but we could still kind of manage it and report it. But with just a little shifting of the earth's tectonic plates, that same volcano could erupt in such a way that it would cover all of Japan in ash. Just like that. And when it happened, it wasn't like, well, um, you know, somebody's out there going, well, I'm going to make sure it doesn't cover my house. No, no, it covered everything. And that's the nature of God's holiness. And when God's holiness is revealed, everything in its wake is going to feel the intensity of its brightness. And that's why I believe that there will be no holding God to any question in that day. There will be no, well, but what about so-and-so, and what about that, and will they seem like they were a nice person? It's like, look, here comes the righteousness of God unbridled, and everything in its wake is going to get covered. On the flip side of that, Christ has come, and out of the tomb erupted life, and out of the tomb erupted hope and out of the tomb erupted all kinds of opportunity for us to be, to come and receive from Christ covering for our sins so that in in the same moment when the holiness of God is fully released on mankind we will be covered and blanketed by what Christ has issued forth when his blood was shed on the cross <laughs> A covering came to us, and in and under that covering, we will be saved. God's holiness is no respecter of persons. The second thing I think the cross teaches us about hell and about sin is that unchecked sin leads to gruesome death. (laughs) The third thing the cross teaches us about hell and sin is that no one can make it to God on their own merit. You know, if um, let's just go down this road for a moment, and, and it's easy to do. How many of you feel like it, it wouldn't be hard for you to kind of get on the road that says, you know, somehow is this all going to work out? I mean, I do believe the Bible, and for me personally, I, believe, I do believe in hell, and I do believe in Jesus, and I do believe in the cross. But, man, I, you know, I just kind of want to reserve this part of my heart over here that says, uh, hopefully, it's just all going to work out for everybody somehow at the end of the day. That, that, that's a human <laughs> desire. But what it does is it breaks apart the character of God, and we can't do that. Because without the, the wrath of God, there's no righteousness of God. They're interwoven together. And so you can't have one side of that equation without the other. But here's the big story. That, that for us, we, we've got to come to terms with the fact that we cannot make it to God on our own merit. And if we can, let's just do the, 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 the best case scenario. If there's, a, if there's a little lady somewhere in Cleveland, and she's a kind and gentle soul. But she doesn't believe in Jesus and hasn't given her life fully to receive the work of Christ done for her on the cross. You know, isn't there a way for her somehow at the end of the day, like a little back door? And yes, the mass murderers are going straight to the lake of fire. Yes, the human traffickers are going straight into the lake of fire. Yes, Satan is going straight into the lake of fire. And so we're like, I can see the, the pedophile. I can see the men who have abducted young girls in Eastern Europe and taken them from their families and their lives and locked them away and uh, that rape them and impregnate them so that they can put them on steroids while they're pregnant and then give steroids to the baby to speed up the process of their growth so they can sell them faster to the pedophile. They're going to hell. We can see that. But we got this lady in Cleveland. And surely there's, you know, the front door for all those people. And there's like a back door for her at the end of the day where everybody can say, okay, here, just go that way. The the place where that breaks down is Jesus. The place where that breaks down is the fact that Jesus Christ was shredded on a cross to save us from the wrath of God. And if there is a way to get to heaven apart from that, is Jesus not the most foolish person who's ever walked the face of earth? Is he not to be pitied, to say thank you for putting down heaven and putting on skin and going to the cross and being crushed by our shame. Oh, but you know, there was always going to be a way for somebody to take the back door. Jesus did not believe in a backdoor way when he said, It is finished on the cross. He is teaching us by his death on a cross that he is convinced of everything he taught about hell. And lastly, the biggest thing maybe today that the cross teaches us about hell is that it is avoidable. <laughs> I would have probably clapped, yelled, and maybe done a lap right there. <laughs> What the cross teaches us mostly about hell is that it is avoidable. (laughs) I mean the guy hanging on Jesus' side escaped it on the last breath. You know, the corollary of that that we don't talk about a lot is that there's another thief there. And man, can you imagine that thief? when the righteousness of God unbridled comes and the wrath of God comes on humanity and he says, yeah, I died next to him and ridiculed him with my last breath. Hell. Regret, remorse, and an eternity of conscious Awareness that I did not acknowledge him before men. And now he is not acknowledging me before his father in heaven. And another common thief who at the end of the day said, Jesus, I acknowledge you on a garbage heap with my last breath. I am not worthy, but I acknowledge you. And Jesus said, today I will acknowledge you before my father. Today, his words exactly, you will be with me in paradise. You know, when you put hell on the table, it is real and gruesome and and it is ugly and In every way, it is the most difficult thing for us to process with our brains. But everywhere you see hell, you see God's grace overwhelming the conversation by saying, but it's avoidable. It's avoidable. Not because of you. Not because you deserve something different. You deserve the wrath of God. You deserve death. That is the wages of sin. And if I gave you what you deserved, that's what you would get. But I'm not like that. I'm a graceful God. I'm a merciful God. I'm a kind God. So I've orchestrated time and space to put my son in your place. Receive him. Accept him. Believe on him. Look on him. Cling to him. And avoid death. This is God's heart for us. The so people say, well, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? And you say, how could anyone reject the love of God? How could anyone reject the love of God? We, we, are, we are human and we always bend it around a human way. We always bend it around human ways. Well, how could a, a loving God send anyone to hell? That's a human twist on a beautiful gospel story. And it's the dumbest question we could ask to a God who gave his own son to be crushed so that we could avoid hell and have the assurance of life for free in him forever. The question isn't how could a good loving God send anyone to hell? The question is how could God not send us all to hell? What kind of love must he have? that he wouldn't spare his own son but would freely offer him up to change the question from how could a loving God send someone to hell to how could you not accept the love of God for you? We read that he desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So I just close today I want to take us to this passage of scripture that I think is maybe where we need to park today. It's interesting the feedback I've gotten in these weeks because people, some people are like, man, I've never heard a message on heaven and I'm looking forward to the one on hell. I've never really heard a message on hell. I mean, I've heard an invitation on hell before, but I've never heard a message on it. I had other people say, uh, man, could you just lean a little harder? I mean, I've got someone on my row and they, they, they don't believe. Can you just like turn the heat up a little more? I'm like, really? How, how can you turn the heat up more? You either agree with God or you don't. Please don't leave today saying, I don't agree with the preacher. Because there was no illustration, funny story. Let me tell you about my life. So you either agree with Jesus or you don't agree with Jesus and you have that prerogative today. You can leave this house today and say, I don't agree with Jesus. But you can't leave today and say you don't agree with me unless you just wanna go and find your own teachings of Jesus out of all these verses in red and recreate your own story and you want to reframe the cross in your own way to say, well, I know Jesus died, but that was just so, so people like me could be saved. But for other people, there's probably another way. Well, promise you this today. That other way, Jesus would have broadcast that from the top of the temple rock and said, hey, there's another way. Just hang on and let me just direct you to so-and-so. But he didn't do that. And so I don't know how to put it out there more clearly today. And I would just implore you today as one human being who's an agent of God in this space today to put your hope in Jesus. Because the beauty of today is that we're all here in the presence of God and the, the tragedy of today is that we're all now Void of the argument. I didn't really know that. Because we do. And it wouldn't matter anyway because there is no arguing at the end of the day. When the brightness of the holiness of God is fully unleashed on mankind, there is no arguing. It would be like standing under that volcano and going, Well, wait a minute now. I didn't know you were going to erupt today. And uh, I actually have spent a lot of time on these little crops I've got right here. And so now I'm, let's just, wait, 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 whoa, whoa. No, it's just an instantaneous event with zero rebuttal. No rebuttal. But in that little flickering of a moment, that little instant, of regret, at least those of us today, thank you, Jesus, will say, I knew, I knew this was coming, I knew this was coming. So I don't want you to turn to this, um, they might put it on the screen for us, but this is from Deuteronomy, from the Old Testament, (laughs) you know, the fire and brimstone days, where the heart of God was just bleeding forth. And this is what I invite you to today. This is God speaking in Deuteronomy 30. And he says, this day, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Life this is God see today I've set before you life and death blessings and curses now ask God I would like to enter into the process and say please choose life please choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God so listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers abraham and isaac and jacob this has always been god from the very beginning of time saying sin is real just look at the cross sin is gruesome just look at the cross the chasm of hell as it separates us from the opportunity To enjoy God is real and cannot be spanned by any merit of man. But choose life. Choose life.